Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. So as you all know, I'm not a big fan of cooking. I don't really like prepping food. I don't really like making food. I'm a bit of a minimalist, to be honest. And one of my go-tos, and you've heard me talk about it before, they are my favorite, it's the Avive smoothies. They are so good. They are a three-step blender-free smoothie. Yes, blender-free, friends. They're amazing. They are packed with micronutrients. I absolutely love them if I'm trying to get in a couple, little bit more vitamins, some more minerals. And they come in these frozen wheels with these little pods and you pop them out into your favorite mason jar or shaker and you put your favorite liquid on them. So I use oat milk or hot tip. If you don't want to use that, I actually sometimes pour in hot water if I'm feeling really antsy and then they melt a little bit faster and then you shake and then it's done. And then you literally drink up and they're so delicious. They're so good. I want to tell you about one of my favorites. It's Yogi smoothie and it has banana, pear, rehydrated plant-based protein. So you're getting a bit of protein in there, spinach, spirulina, dehydrated vegetables. So you've got spinach, broccoli, carrot, tomato, beet, shiitake, lots of spinach in this one, but super tasty. You know, you're not getting something that tastes like super earthy or anything like that. It's really, really, really yummy and they're creamy and they're so good. They are available online. So they have an online smoothie subscription that is completely customizable and commitment-free. They're also available in over 3,000 grocery stores across Canada and the U.S. And in the show notes, there is going to be a link and I have a code for you today. It is KenzieBrenna30 that you can use towards your purchase of Avive Smoothies today. Okay, I'm sitting here with Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy. Hello. Hello. How are you doing today, Lauren? I'm good, thanks. I'm excited to be talking with you. Oh, likewise. I came across your Instagram account sometime in 2020 and your posts are so beautiful. They're so informative. They're like these big, wonderful infographics all to do with sex and self-esteem and mental health and all things in between. Um, And you're a relationship therapist and a writer and a sex therapist. And I had been wanting to ask you onto the podcast for a while, but I'm so forgetful and I have so many wonderful Instagram friends that I want on. Um, So I asked you late in 2020, and I'm so glad we were able to lock in a date here to talk with you. Do you want to start off by telling the community, a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and how you came to be a sex therapist. Yeah. So um, we have something in common, which is that I'm from Toronto originally. That's where I grew up and that's where um, I went to my undergrad at, at York University and then sort of moseyed my way to the U.S. to study psychology and go to grad school. And I've been here ever since um, and started, I think, you know, prior to grad school, sort of taking more of an interest in human sexuality. And that really 
I think blossomed more as I was learning about therapy and being a therapist and relationships. And so um, after I finished my uh, graduate degree, I went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship here in Minnesota, which is where I currently live um, at the University of Minnesota, where they have a program that's designed to specialize in uh, human sexuality and gender. And so I did a two-year training in that and fell in love with it even more. And so this has been my passion uh, and the work that I do for, um, I think we're at eight or nine years at this point, and it's just something I love so much. I also went on to become certified as a sex therapist uh, by ASECT and so, uh, and also did some training with the Gottman Institute to learn more about their method in relationships. Wow, very cool. First thing that comes up into my mind, um, and this wasn't a question that I had emailed you, but I'm so curious when you were going through school to become, you know, this relation, this amazing relationship therapist, and then um, getting to be a certified sex therapist, and you're learning all of these things. Did you learn about yourself in the process? Because I could only imagine that having that type of education that you could you know, to a certain extent, apply it inward and to look at yourself in so many different ways. Yeah, you know, there's there's sort of a phenomenon that happens when you study psychology, or I would imagine this happens with medicine too, that you start to read about all these different diagnoses or um, issues that people might be experiencing and you start to see yourself in many of them. Um, and so it's really common. There's sort of a joke in grad school that you'll, you know, read the diagnostic manual of, you know, different mental health issues and start to think that you have all of them because right. you're <laughs> resonating with something in so many of them because they describe, you know, human experiences. Mm -hmm. And so being that we're all human and we have some common threads that tie us together that, you know, we can relate to. Um, I honestly think that I was so focused on learning some of these things for the first time that a lot of my, my own personal journey with the material that I have learned and um, specialized in, I think it's come over the past few years. Once I was out of my formal education and practicing, a lot of what I've learned has come from working with people and really getting sort of beyond the book knowledge and into the practice of it. Mm. Wonderfully said. So the part that we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be mostly talking about fun sex questions that um, I'm really curious about. I know that the community is really curious about. And the first thing that I want to start off with is libido. And I know that we've all heard that term before and that there are different, you know, um, you know, mixed preconceptions of it and whatnot. And so first off, let's talk, just talk about what is a libido and then we'll go from there. So I think, you know, there's some controversy when it comes to some of these things. I think just like many things in life, there's different perspectives. And so, um, you know, the origin uh, of the word libido, my understanding is that comes from Freud. And the idea of libido was a word that was used to describe a sex drive. 
Um, now we can go into arguments about whether there's a sex drive, there isn't a sex drive. I fall under the camp that doesn't see it as a drive per se, because I see a drive as something that we do for our individual survival, that if you don't engage in it within a set period of time, that you won't individually be able to continue. And so sex doesn't exactly fall under that, although some people would like to argue that it certainly feels that way for them. Um, but I use libido as a synonym to desire. And so desire, and again, another area of controversy is desire just mental? Is it physical? Is it both? I, I kind of break it down as desire is more of the mental interest in sex, the longing for sex, the intrigue by sex. And then arousal is more the body's response to that. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about the mind and the body, and they sometimes operate in different um, sequences. Some people experience desire first, some people experience arousal first. So when I talk about libido, I'm talking about interest and, and uh, sexual desire. That is such a fantastic description between the difference of um, desire and arousal. I love that because that just created the perfect mental image in my head that desire is this like internal want. It's this, it's like pulling you towards what you want. And then arousal is more of like the physical embodiment of that desire. And I love that too, because that is also like breaking it down like that can also show that some people might have um, a disconnect from that, or some people might have different patterns with their desires and with their arousals. And like you said, some people's desire comes first. Some people's desire comes after the physical arousal. Um, and I would say like that opens up conversation for sometimes people can disconnect from themselves and just have the physical arousal and not necessarily have that desire in their head, but they're just, um, you know, physically in the moment with a partner. Anyways, I'm going off. It was just such a good description that I'm like, done. That's it. We're going to talk about this for the rest of the interview. Um, but the next question that I have is how do we increase or decrease our libidos? Um, um, and I almost want to rephrase libido now as uh, like desire or the desire arousal response in us. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And it's certainly one that I would say that's probably the number one thing that people come to me with is I am experiencing low desire for sex. How do I experience more desire for sex? Um, so I'd say that's that's one of the most common you know, concerns that we see, I think, globally as sex therapists. Um, you know, I lean a lot on the book Come As You Are, which was uh, a book written a few years ago by Dr. Emily Nagoski that is coming out with a um, updated version this year, which is really exciting. Um, and in that, she explains really well uh, another concept uh, in the uh, sexual health community, which is called the dual control model. And the dual control model is just a fancy way of saying that there are two uh, kind of uh, elements, two variables that are contributing to our desire uh, at any one time. And, uh, you know, she really uses a great metaphor for this. It's like thinking of your sexuality as a car that has a brake pedal and a gas pedal. 
And so there's a number of things that might be kind of hitting the brakes. And then there might be some things that are hitting the gas. But if you know anything about cars, if you have both feet firmly planted, you're trying to rev the gas, but there's a whole ton of bricks on the brake as well. Doesn't matter how hard you hit the gas pedal, you're not going anywhere. And what we find, uh, you know, from talking to people is that it's really, it's not as much weighted on the gas pedal, although that's an important variable, but there's a lot these days that's hitting the brakes. And what hits everyone's brakes can be different. And, um, you know, for some people, certain stresses will actually move them towards sex. Like, you know, sex can be a stress reliever. And so they might be, oh, I'm so stressed out. I'm going to, you know, feel more inclined to have sex so that I can relieve some of that tension. And then for other people, stresses might really turn them off from sex. And they might feel like, you know, I really need to have some of this stuff off my plate before I could even consider being sexual. And so what I often am doing with folks when we're in therapy is looking at these two pedals. What is contributing to your brakes? What helps rev your gas? And how do we work with these things? Because some of the things that are on that brake pedal, they may or may not be things that we can change. And, you know, this past year, especially, there has just been a tremendous hit to the brake pedal for so many people. So we're looking at both things. What are the things that we can turn off about the turnoffs and turn on more of the turn ons? And that's a basic principle to how do we look at something like this? So even just, you know, for listeners as they're thinking about this and, and conceptualizing it this way. What are some of the things that are hitting your brakes? Just starting to think about that and starting to identify what those variables are. Because just naming that and knowing that is a way for us to start. Mm. Okay, so well put. So well put. In my head right now, I'm like going off on all of the instances where I had both the brake pedal on and the gas pedal on and ways that I almost dishonored that, like ways that I was trying to force myself to release the brake pedal and I just couldn't. You know, I've always had a very interesting relationship with sex where I both like loved it and hated it. I would say like so many people, like so many people and I'm very lucky to be with like, you know, kind partners and patient partners and whatnot. And something that, you know, always puts my brake pedal on full force is, you know, work stress, um, relationship stress. Like I don't necessarily feel desire or arousal when I have, you know, a lot going on in my nervous system. And oftentimes I think that there's, you know, a misconception that you can just unhook the brake pedal immediately and you can just enter into a state of desire arousal whenever your partner is. And that can be really hard to manage because you can have these mismatched um, patterns of desire and arousal. You know, what happens when your partner wants sex and that's a way that they feel close to you and that's a way that might be, um, you know, 
a way that they feel really bonded and maybe they feel affirmed through sex. Um, but you're like, absolutely not. I'm full brake pedal right now. So this mismatched libidos in partners, um, what are some of the ways that you think is best to handle that? It's, I think, you know, the, the low libido, the low desire is one of the most common things I see. And then probably matched with that is that my partner and I have different desire levels. We want sex to look different from each other or the frequency is different for us. And how do we navigate that? And I'd say that that is such a common thing that is often not talked about. And so a lot of people feel you know, maybe badly about it, but it's, it's a common thing. And it's tricky to navigate because in many relationships, it falls under what we call perpetual uh, problem or a perpetual issue, meaning that it's a consistent difference between two people. And so how do we find a way to navigate that or manage that long-term that honors both or more people in the relationship. Because there may not be an easy or um, kind of fixed solution that really can get both people or more people their ideal, right? So if one person's ideally wanting to be sexual multiple times a week, and another person is ideally wanting to be sexual once every few months, there's no way to do both of those things at the same time. And so it often becomes a matter of uh, compromising and negotiating and um, really kind of working with a couple of different variables. You know, one is how do we lift some of the brakes? How do we rev some of the gas? How do we find maybe some different ways to be intimate that are not maybe always following the same script. Because I think so many people have been sort of handed down this idea of sex and it's gonna look like this. It starts here, it goes to this, it ends with this. And it can develop this sort of all or nothing sort of flavor to it. Like we're either gonna do that whole script or just, you know, I don't wanna do any of it. And one of the most common things that I recommend for the partners that I work with is to expand that repertoire so that there's some flexibility and variety in what sex can look like or what intimacy can look like. So that on the days when I'm tired, on the days when I'm more stressed, on the days where someone's menstruating and maybe doesn't feel the same way that they might at other times, that there's various ways that we could be um, intimate and, and experience pleasure because at the root of, you know, the why for sex for so many people, there's some common threads, like why have sex? What's the motivator? And there's some top common motivators, you know, top two would be for a lot of people is pleasure and a sense of connection. And so there might be a couple or more different ways that we can achieve a sense of pleasure or a sense of connection that may not always fall into the same script. So that's one way that I really encourage partners to think about multiple ways that they might be able to feel those things so that it broadens our ability to, uh, to be open to 
a sexual experience or an intimate experience. Yeah, that is so on point. You know, I think that the all or nothing script that you were talking about is so real and that we really need to drop it. And this is why I think sex positivity is so important, like embracing sexual education and embracing understanding the this desire and arousal model and then the the incredible analogy of the brake pedal and the gas pedal and then infusing everything especially sex because it's still so stigmatized it's both stigmatized and used as a way to sell everything in our society it's like it's the most wild dichotomy um but infusing a level of curiosity into these very tender very delicate moments where you know a partner may be initiating sex um or be initiating something to do with like physical intimacy and you know if you're not there or if it's vice versa if you're initiating it and your partner's not there how can we remain curious and how can we remain connected in those moments instead of um you know shutting down or getting anxious because it's probably definitely not about us um you know and how can we actually support our partners and then have our hopefully have our partners support us in the moments where our libidos do not match? How can we ask questions and stuff? I recently took a course online um, through Beducated regarding um, a lingam massage and regarding a yoni massage. And honestly, Lauren, that blew my freaking mind because it was, and and I'm like, I'm, I'm a big atheist and I, and I still am like learning how to be with my physical self and infuse a level of spirituality that isn't dogmatic. You know, um, I know that that was like a lot, but, um, the courses that I took kind of brought me back to this place of like sacredness with sex, that sex can be very slow and intentional and that it doesn't have to have these end goal points of um orgasming um orgasming at the same time like all like these like these standards almost that we want to hit and it can just be about what's my intention right now with my partner and then allowing that to unfold how it has to unfold and really taking our time and not just like this is what happens especially um I was going to say, especially in heteronormative relationships, but I completely retracted that thought. Um, in all relationships, you know, just really requiring a level of curiosity, intention, um, and letting go of those standards, those the ridiculous standards that we put on ourselves, which can, I would say, impede us from like connecting and from actually like experiencing pleasure. And you said something so beautifully in a recent Instagram post when sex is not a performance, it's an experience. And that was just like so affirming and so beautiful. I'm just wondering if you could actually expand a little bit on that for us. Yeah, it's, um, you know, somebody I think commented on the post about, you know, for some people, it maybe the performance is like, what's fun about it. And, and I think, you know, certainly there can be like with role playing and trying different things on, like there can be that maybe element of it. Um, but, but this idea that, you know, we have to go into it with sort of a set script and hit all the marks and achieve a goal 
That's the kind of performative, performance-based sex that tends to um, disrupt people's experience of pleasure, that tends to create some barriers to their sexual response. So these are times where I often see more of a performance anxiety, um, where it's difficult to get aroused, maybe more difficult to have an orgasm. Maybe orgasms are happening quicker than you'd like. Um, those are things that tend to coincide with this performance-based mentality because I like analogies and, and metaphors. So this is one, if it works for you, great. If not, you can chuck it. Um, but this idea of, you know, if I'm going to get into the car and I'm just going to go for a drive and as I'm looking out the window, oh, there's a rainbow and it's beautiful. And isn't that cool? And I have this really great moment. And otherwise I was just there for the drive and, and for the experience of going for a drive. And that's really different than getting into the car and you're like, we're going to go find a rainbow. We're going to get in the car. We're going to get, and we can't stop till we get there. That's a totally different drive. That's a totally different experience. And so it's sort of the difference between, you know, the um, destination versus the journey. And when we're too destination focused, um, this is when we can get into our heads, which can sometimes throw us off. There's a term for sex where we're not fully present for it, where we sort of feel like we're more like an observer than an actual participant. And this comes from Masters and Johnson, who were very famous sex researchers back in the 60s. Uh, and they call it spectatoring, which is when you're, it's sort of like if you were in an arena, you're like up in the bleachers instead of actually out in the game. Like you're not really there, you're just sort of hovering and observing. and. This is often when we can sort of be critical or judgmental of ourselves or, um, you know, just, again, kind of being too cognitive instead of experiential. So when we think of sex as more open-ended and we think of it as more of something to be an embodied experience where you're really aware of your senses, those are some of the things that I work on in therapy with the with the folks who come to see me is, is how to get out of your head and more into your body, which, as you know, as I know, as a lot of people know, that can sometimes be a scary or difficult place to be. Yeah, I think that that's all like, that's all really, really, really hitting home. And the idea that it's about the journey and not the destination and that perfect analogy, oh my gosh, how much more inviting is it to get in the car and potentially see a rainbow, but like have no expectations and then to just be pleasantly surprised at what comes up rather than this like very controlling, trying to um, assert an outcome before it even happens idea of let's, we're going into the car because we've got to find a rainbow. Cause if we don't find a rainbow, I'm not going to be happy at that point. It's just so inflexible and it's just, there's a lot of pressure there. And I feel like we, yeah, we do that in relationships where we create this pressure between one another or for one person, maybe more so than the other. And then that desire and that arousal might be affected. That brake pedal might just like completely slam shut. Um, there's like a lack of openness. 
it's it's a such a different experience and it and it makes some sense right that as you're going on that drive that's destination focused you're like i got to see a rainbow or the whole thing was a waste of time or you know i'm going to be so disappointed or you know the whole thing's a wash as you're on that drive what's likely happening is we're not even just hitting brakes we're we're tapping into your stress response like your body's stress and survival response is starting to click on so the nervous system is starting to activate in a way that is sometimes counter to the arousal system the desire system the sexual response system and so for many people these are competing systems you have your survival response and then you have your sexual response and for a lot of folks they can't both be activated at the same time now that may not be true for everyone but i i think it's true for uh you know many people and that may resonate and if you think about the origins of why that might be i mean there is a there is a survival based reason for that you know our nervous systems are pretty old so you know we're estimating like 500 million years old is you know true for some parts of it especially the reptilian parts and so if you are a cave dwelling person and you're facing you know threats day to day from predators and the elements and things like that you're about to go have this you know sexy tender moment and then like a bear shows up it's going to be in your best interest that the blood flow moves from your genitals back to your extremities to run to fight to get out of that situation and so in that context that's a beautiful system and makes a lot of sense. And then you have our modern day where, I mean, save for some of what's been happening lately, which I think is very real threats and um, just sort of system overload. Um, however, just, you know, getting into the car and going for that drive or being with a partner who's like, okay, let's go. We've got 20 minutes till the kids come home or whatever it is that can hit the same system as oh there's a bear and so we might be experiencing that disconnect between you know the situation feels like well what you know why can't i get turned on why am i not interested what's going on and in the background your nervous system is saying now's not the time yes absolutely so well put i think that you just made it so clear for all of us. And the way that you describe that also destigmatizes it where you're like, nothing is wrong with you. This is, it's normal to, um, you know, have this like nervous system response. And that when, when we are dealing with matters like this, it's, it's okay to operate in the speed of the nervous system and to operate at the nervous system level instead of at this sort of um, maybe prefrontal cortex level of like conceptual ideas, um, imaginative ones where that's not necessarily real and what's going on here in the moment. And I'm curious how this is linked to sexual performance anxiety and uh, what that is. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, again, another common thing that I talk to folks about, and I think, you know, what tends to happen, and I want to clarify, so performance anxiety is often 
what um, what we're looking at is when there's nothing medically going on, there's nothing physiologically causing uh, difficulties with arousal, difficulties with orgasm, which that could be something that's going on for some folks. And we certainly want to address that. When, when I'm talking to folks about performance anxiety, let's say we've already ruled some of that out, that there's nothing medically, biologically going on. Not to say that the nervous system isn't biological as because it is. Um, but what we're often looking at is, okay, so, you know, we, we learn things through wiring and our system learns things through wiring. So let's say I went to go and have sex and for some reason that time I couldn't get turned on. And so, okay, well, you know, that happened, wah, wah, you know, on to the next time. And then I go to have sex again and uh-oh, there it is again. I'm starting to think about it. I'm starting to worry about it. I'm starting to get into my head about it. Is it going to happen again? Is it not? Is this going to work? Is my What's my partner think? Are they getting frustrated? All this stuff starts to build. Now, the next time I go to have sex, that stuff's all coming with me and that starts to build over time. And so what happens is more and more we're hitting the stress response and we're not able to experience the sexual response. And so for folks where that's not medically driven, it's sort of the body learning that there's something about this that's threatening, that's dangerous, that's unsafe or uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, that is definitely something that I think is more common than not. <laughs> I think it's really, again, because the, and I keep saying this, but it's so true, but because sex is still so stigmatized, you know, I, I know I have friends who have been with their partner for 10 years and they barely talk about sex. Like they, they have sex, but they don't talk about it. And so, which is interesting. Um, and so I think that in these stigmatized places, in these really sensitive places, we can so just live in our head. We just completely disconnect neck down and we can just completely live in our head and we have that anxiety. And then on top of that, if we're like, what if we tell our partner that you know, that I'm having this issue again and that I'm getting in my head and what if they get frustrated and then what if they're turned off by my honesty because insecurities aren't sexy. So like, am I going to turn them off by telling them that I'm having a problem? Well, I don't want to be a turn off. So I'm just going to force my way through. And you're like, I'm sure that you as a doctor, you're like, no, don't force yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because we tried to you know, get through the moment and, and to minimize the, um, you know, challenges and the distractions and hurt feelings. Um, and then sometimes, you know, unintentionally, we end up kind of having things snowball then, like it, it becomes more of a thing. And, you know, sometimes our bodies are more resilient than others. And so sometimes, you know, you can have a negative or a challenging experience. And the next time, it's just fine. And other times 
that moment can sort of wire as, oh, this is something to, you know, pay attention to next time or to be cautious of. And I don't know if there's always a rhyme or reason as to what gets wired quickly versus what takes more time uh, to wire that way. But certainly with performance anxiety, I've seen that happen from one occasion where it's now, you know, and, and I think that goes to um, our sex education that speaks to our uh, knowledge about um, our bodies and our expectations. And I think it's really important that, you know, folks realize that there is no 100% sexual function. There is no, you know, perfect every single time I have desire, I have arousal, I orgasm, everything works seamlessly. And so for folks who are prone to developing performance anxiety pretty quickly, I often see that in folks who are expecting the 100% function. And so the one time that they couldn't get aroused, they're in their heads, you know, really worried, freaking out, something is wrong with me. And, you know, the first thing we talk about is that's, that's going to happen sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking as you're saying that, I know that there will be some listeners who are thinking to themselves like, well, if I should give up the goal of orgasming, um, you know, like, because again, let's say it doesn't happen for them um, too often during sex or whatnot, um, then what is the goal of having sex? You know, because so oftentimes we may think that the goal from sex is to be just orgasming with one another um, in a state of like ecstasy and bliss. And then that, and then like that never, that doesn't, I don't say that, that I shouldn't say that that never happens, but um, that might not happen. And so what are some other goals for sex that couples could have um, instead of using the orgasm as the goal? Yeah. You know, and I think it's a tricky thing, right? It's sort of this, um, dichotomy, if you will, like it's, it's okay to want to have an orgasm and it's okay to do things that tend to uh, produce an orgasm. And even when you want one, and even when you do the things that typically work to have one, think of a bell curve, you know, there's a percentage of time where that's just not going to lead to one. And it could be because, you had too much, you know, dinner and you're kind of feeling a little, you know, still digesting and whether, you know, it could be that, or it could be that you're just, you know, kind of thinking about your day a little bit more than usual or whatever the situation might be. And so, um, you know, it can be the goal sometimes, but maybe it's not the goal every time. And, you know, what is the goal? I kind of go back to what are some of the whys that folks tend to have for being sexual. And there was a study uh, done or some research done by um, David Buss and Cindy, uh, I think it's Meeston or Meston, uh, years ago. They came up with like 237 different whys for people. And, you know, they tend to have themes. I don't know that they're 237 distinct things, mm. um, but variations of some themes. But I go back to, what are you looking for? What are you needing? Is it pleasure? Is it connection? Is it to feel desired and wanted? Is it to reduce stress? Um, is it to feel life affirmed? 
Is it to mourn? You know, there are all these different things that could be a motivator for sex. And that's that's really the framework I use um, and that many folks are using now for sex that instead of seeing it as a drive, that's just sort of automatic and, you know, it's a passive thing, like it just happens and emerges out of nowhere, that it's more of what we call an incentive motivation system which means that you need a motivator. What is the motivator? And that motivator may be different. Your motivator may be different from the person you're having sex with, and that can be okay. They can, you know, both coexist. Um, That motivator may change over circumstances. You know, today I'm motivated by an orgasm. That would just feel really great and relieve some tension. And that's what I'm up for. And other times it's just, you know, I feel distant from you. I want to connect. I want to feel close. I just want to be in this moment with you. And so that could be a number of different things. So I think sort of exploring what your motivator is or what your motivators are can be a really helpful way. And I think that also lends to, you know, back to what we said earlier, that having some flexibility around what sex can look like. What I do, you know, specifically when I'm looking for an orgasm might be really different than what I do when I'm just looking to feel sexy, which might also be really different from what I do when I'm looking to connect. Mm. What about people who can only achieve orgasm through a toy? I know that that might be difficult for couples that might make someone feel like, uh, again, there's something wrong with me. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is this is a really common thing. Um, it tends to be most common for people who have a vulva and a clitoris, although it can also be true for folks who have a venus. And so, um, you know, some of that is just how our anatomy might work. Um, you know, for folks with a vulva or a clitoris, you know, four-fifths of that structure is internal. So what you're seeing on the the external part, I'm speaking specifically about the clitoris now, what you're seeing externally is just a fraction of the actual uh, structure itself. And depending on the distance between that and your vaginal opening, the you know size of it, how engorged it gets, like depending on the individual differences of your anatomy, that may or may not reflect sort of what kind of stimulation you need to get off. So for some people, they can, you know, have an orgasm in a couple of different ways. And for other people, there's just something about toys that is hard to replicate with bodies. And I always kind of go back to, I mean, they're popular for a reason, like they're a thing for a reason. And by design, they're there to help aid with that process. And so for some bodies, they can have that as a complement to other ways that they can orgasm. And for some people, that's just going to be the way that is most effective for their body to orgasm. And I think, you know, keeping in mind that there's room for exploration, you can certainly try different things and just see what you like and what works for you. Uh, But it's also okay to land at a place where you're learning that the toy is going to be your best or most effective method to have an orgasm. And 
that's certainly common and certainly normal. And then something to maybe discuss with a partner and then figure out ways to incorporate that into partnered sex so that orgasms can be at least sometimes an option for partnered sex. Um, a book I really like to um, recommend to folks is uh, called Becoming Cliterate by Dr. Lori Mintz. Um, it's a really nice book. I, I um, have heard so many people talk about just, just reading that book alone for that to help them feel more quote unquote normal or less like something's, you know, quote unquote wrong with their body. Um, and there are a number of different toys too. So not all toys are the same. So, you know, there are toys that are, you know, better for maybe using on your own and then maybe toys that are better for or more conducive to using with a partner. There's also toys that you can use. Maybe you're using something before penetrative sex, if that's something you want to do. Maybe there's toys that you're using during penetrative sex, if that's something you want to do. So I think there's, there's a lot of options, but, you know, for, for some folks, and maybe that's, that's more than we realize, you know, without a toy, they just may not be able to achieve the same level of arousal or orgasm as they would uh, without it. Right, right. And do you think that there are ways that we might lean on toys to give us orgasms instead of um, exploring other options or instead of, um, yeah, not, I was going to say like, instead of like detoxing from our toys, but like, obviously I don't want to use that. I don't want to oh. say that. Oh, um, but I know for me in particular, I can definitely get toy dependent for sure. And it's interesting because it has in the past, you know, um, I don't want to say have been difficult for my partners, but maybe a little bit, you know, like definitely some, like definitely a sticky area to discuss with them and whatnot. But is, yeah, is there any way that we can sometimes get a little bit too dependent? And I love that you're like, you're also like, hey, what liberates you is what liberates you. You know, if at the end of the day, if you want to do that, you want to do that. And so definitely like no shame around it whatsoever. And I'm just curious too, if we can get a little bit, um, if we can lean on toys, maybe a little bit too much. Yeah, this is, it's a good week for me to have this conversation. I just sat in on a women's sexual health seminar with a, a colleague of mine, um, and she was talking about some of the research and what we know. And, you know, we, we don't seem to find that there's like a physical dependence. It's not like a physiological dependence, but certainly there can become a psychological uh, dependence. I think of it, you know, some people are worried about you know, desensitization or this quote unquote, like I'm addicted to my vibrator. You're not addicted to your vibrator. So <laughs> let's, let's dispel that myth. Um, what, what we do experience is habituation. We create habits and pathways to experience something, right? So if using my hand takes some more time because of just the type of stimulation that that gives me, and maybe that takes me 15 minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it is. And it can feel like, oh, you know, it takes a little bit of time and it takes energy and it, you know, and I get impatient and then I use a toy and it takes me, you know, three, four or five minutes. I may start to prefer the toy because it's more, um, it's maybe less effortful. Maybe it's quicker. So it's more uh, of an immediate response rather than maybe one that takes a little bit of time to build. So it makes sense, right? I mean, we tend to be creatures of like, give me something 
you know, quickly and, and make it, you know, an efficient route to get there, you might develop a preference for it. I, um, I also think that it's just something that is different, you know, again, I'll go back to an analogy. Um, and I want to be careful about not uh, placing value on this, because I'm going to talk about food, if that's okay, for mm -hmm. a minute. But, you know, an apple and a piece of chocolate cake taste different. They just do. They're both sweet. They both have sugars. They're, you know, but they're different. And if I have a piece of chocolate cake and then I have a bite of an apple, that I, apple might taste really different than another time when I eat it. Or maybe I haven't had chocolate cake in a few days and then I go taste an apple and I'm like, wow, this tastes really sweet. So I think some of it is just what we habituate to, what we get used to. And so people are like, well, you know, I can't eat apples anymore because I've just ruined myself with how rich the chocolate cake is. No, but maybe if you're somebody who wants to try out kind of experiencing that apple differently, maybe you take a week off from the chocolate cake just to kind of let your taste buds experience something different. Not because there's anything wrong with chocolate cake, but because your goal is like, I want to taste the sweetness of the apple. Yes. Oh my God. Retweet. Literally. That was just so, so perfect. I think that it's kind of like this both and thing where it's not that you have to like get rid of your toys or, or anything like that. And if you find that you can really only feel pleasure with them, is there a way that you'd want to try to reset? Is that something that's important to you? Is that something that's important to your partner? If not, then like have at it kind of thing. It's also like, I remember, um, sitting in on, um, some, in, yeah, some sex positivity webinar, but honestly, I cannot remember the speakers or the panelists name for the life of me. But I remember one of them saying like a toy does things to your body that is humanly possible, impossible for another person to do. So it's, and, it, and it's just like that cake, like you were talking about is manufactured in a hundred different ways than the apple is like, and they're both so delicious and so good and used at different times. But a, a toy, like, let's say that we're taking, you know, like a clitoral suction or some type of extravagant toy that just your a body doesn't vibrate. Like you cannot make something vibrate the same way that a vibrator does, um, you know, and make something into a vacuum the same way that a clitoral, uh, a clitoris like vacuum is. And it's just like, at that point, it's like, don't worry. The, there's your, the standard for a human being is not the same standard as like a toy. You know, you don't need your partner to act exactly the way that your vibrator does and to produce the same types of sensations and um, uh, pleasure points the same way that a toy does. And so I love that because it also just is like pressures off, like, you know, and there's, there's, there's really is no competition to a good vibrator. Like I'm just, I'm saying that, I'm saying that right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, back to the analogy, like the chocolate cake is great. And, yeah. and apples are great. Yeah. And it just depends what you individually want to try out. And I think also to keep in mind that whatever your journey is and whatever your goals are, they get to change over time that, that we don't have to make fixed rules. Like 
you know, I don't respond to an apple the way I do to chocolate cake. So that means I can never eat chocolate cake again. You don't have to buy into that. It could be, you know, I've had a lot of chocolate cake lately and apples don't taste the same way as they do when maybe I haven't had some cake lately. So because I want to try the richness of the apple, I'm going to, you know, kind of steer towards an apple for a few days and just see what that's like after a little bit of time and, you know, see what that experience is like. And you know what, then if I'm like, I really miss the chocolate cake. I just want to go have a piece, have a piece of cake. Absolutely. I think again, it's coming back to an element of curiosity. Are we bringing curiosity to the table instead of, you know, stigma or standards like these external standards, miseducation, all of that. So I really, really, really appreciate your answers and your responses to this today. What way can people find you online after this to connect with you? So I think, you know, the best place to find me is on Instagram. That's where I'm the most active and I I toggle it to Facebook. So if you're more of a Facebook person, you can find me there. And my um, handle is at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy and Mercy is with an S. And so that's where I'm most active. Um, Unfortunately, I can't provide therapy or counseling on Instagram. And I also can't see clients who live outside of the state at the moment. But I certainly do try to provide as much information as I can through through the um, social media that I do. I'm also um, in the midst of writing a book about libido um, and co-authoring that with a friend of mine. So we are hoping to get that out uh, this year if possible so that we can uh, help get that information into the hands of folks who need it. Oh, incredible. I can't wait to read it. I'm like craving more information now that we chatted. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Lauren Fogelmercy. We're really happy that you came on today and chatted with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.